Patterns of Work podcast with Ben and Sol, where we share stories about work. We spend so much of our lives doing our work, being at work, getting on at work, getting hired, getting fired, getting promoted, pivoting our careers, falling in love, losing our shit. There's so much drama there, so many stories, and Sol and I are going to share a few with you and invite some guests on to share theirs. On this episode, we're going to talk about first jobs, Sol. First jobs. So, so first jobs. So, so what's with first jobs? Well, I guess the thing about first jobs is you know what did they what did they mean to you in the rest of your life and what what did you what did you learn from your first job yeah um where at, are they in the in the story of you at the time i'm not sure you really realize certainly you don't realize all that you're learning or that you're going to take away from them but they end up being these seminal stories in your life, actually, I think. They're a starting place, yeah. right? For for this kind of journey that unfolds. Now, I was reading something other, the other day by the poet David White about um, beginning. He has this lovely book about common words, right? And one of them's beginning, and it's like, how difficult it is to begin things mm. sometimes. It's kind of like this courage element, right, of of just stepping off. <laughs> I think I felt that way about my first job. And I think also the there's the first job after college maybe is the thing. That's a sort of special... Because we did all have first jobs in high school, or at least a lot of us did, you know, yeah. summer jobs and so forth. But you go through college and you think, you come out, you graduated, and you're supposed to be ready for the world. Ready for the world. And what do you find yourself doing? <laughs> Whatever it is that you find yourself doing seems important that's a good point there's a kind of an importance there yeah. that wasn't there before right yeah you know in those college jobs or the jobs at school there's a sort of this more urgent question about identity yeah and how you belong in the world and what's going to happen with your life yeah yeah that's right yeah so what what was your first job? My first job. My first job of that kind. Yeah, yeah. My first job out of college was in it was 1991 and it was a very very special first job. I was a an intern, an no, intern, an apprentice is what they called me at an Indian news agency in New Delhi called Asian News International. Uh, news agency business, like why is the wire business, right? It's a 
written word journalism, but as real time as you can make it with the news. That's the wire business, right? You're putting stuff out on the wire. Mm-hmm. And then they also, the, um, it was p- part of this company was also Reuters TV mm-hmm. in India. So I got to work on the, on the wire side, writing, and on the TV side as well. How did you land that? <laughs> well, um, my great auntie Betty <laughs> uh, was um, a lifelong friend with a man, he's still alive, he's called Prem Prakash. And he ran Reuters TV and his son ran Asian News International. And um, I'd always wanted to be a journalist, right? And my great aunt asked Prem, would I be, would he be willing to take me on and as an apprentice? Mm. And so that's what I did. It was a six month gig. It was pretty cool. And did you, what happened after the apprentice period? After the apprentice period? Yeah. I came back to London and it was a sort of a crash landing, really. Mm. Um, I, I, I taught myself to type, and I, I typed for a living. I became a typist for a living um, to, uh, to pay the rent, mm. right? Uh, which some months was more difficult than others, actually. Very difficult some months. And I was late, and mm. my landlord was very tolerant. And in the meantime, I was getting, a, I was getting you know, unpaid internships at newspapers um, of different kinds in London. Um, yeah. And then eventually, you, out of all the unpaid internships, you were hired? Yeah, I landed a, a paying job in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, back in London. But it was a bit rough. Those, I probably did that for about eight or nine months. Very, very poor. I, at one point, I think I all I could afford to purchase in the way of food was spaghetti and oil. <laughs> so I, at some point, all I was eating was spaghetti with oil. <laughs> that, uh, it seemed, I also went through that period. You did? Although I think I had some tomato sauce. Tomato sauce? Yeah. Yeah, that, I, that, I'd lost, at that point, I'd lost the ability to buy tomato sauce. <laughs> was, we were down to the real basics, so. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, the India experience wasn't, I wasn't very wealthy there either. It was the salary in 1991, it was 2,000 rupees a month, which is $40 a month. And um, if you might say, well, that's probably a lot, but in those no, it wasn't. It wasn't a lot at all. <laughs> it was very little. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was, but it was such fun. You know? Do you remember your first day? <sighs> I don't. Mm. I don't remember my first day. That's funny, isn't it? Mm. I don't remember it. I, d- I remember, you know, <laughs> I might get into trouble with this, but the the main activity was um, I would I would be I think I was like perched on a windowsill. I remember myself with a, a radio listening to the BBC and 
writing news based on what on the BBC. <laughs> and then it was like kind of filler, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I put filler out over the over the wire based on the BBC. And did you choose this job or did it choose you? Hmm. I think I chose it. I had a very clear idea from the age of about eight that I wanted to be a journalist. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. You know, I, you know, Tintin? Yeah. The, wait, Alger. So there's Tintin and his dog Snowy. And I was obsessed with these books when I was like seven years old, seven to nine. I had every single one and they were all like so dog-eared because I'd read each one a hundred times. And yeah, I had this sort of very idealistic, romantic notion of journalism at an early age. And that's what I wanted to do. And was he, was the main character a, a young journalist a boy journalist or he was something? a boy journalist okay yeah and his dog snowy and you know there wasn't a lot of journalism maybe he'd go and catch the bad guys mm. right so that's what i was apparently about to go do <laughs> <laughs> you know at the age of 21 kind of slightly unexamined belief really um but it's sort of charming when i when i sort of look back on it <laughs> it's interesting because when you've told me about your journalism career, the idea that, you know, it started with this notion of catching the bad guys and it ended, I think, or one of the last things you did was a piece about a so-called bad guy. Yeah, and why he was innocent. Yeah. I never got to write it, so I was Jeff Skilling. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a journey for you, right? Yeah. Where the bad guys were the people catching the bad guys. Mm. In my in my untold story, it was the prosecution, mm. the uh special counsel, um and the way the prosecution went after the business after the business of prosecuting Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay which was to use RICO statutes, um, which if you're familiar with those, they're basically statutes uh, put in place for prosecuting organized crime. Mm -hmm. So then the way that works is you flip the witnesses, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no question of the criminality of the organization. By definition, it's criminal, right? It's organized crime. Mm -hmm. By definition, it's committing crimes. And the goal is to flip the witnesses to get up to the top. Mm. And that is how the prosecution proceeded with, um, with the Enron case and also with a lot of other white-collar prosecutions in the U.S. Uh, to this day, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I guess it's okay if it is a criminal organization, mm. but what if it isn't? You see what I mean? Yeah. You know, what happens then? Mm. So yeah, quite a journey, right? You yeah. Know, to go from this, yeah. I guess it's kind of a, when you're young, obviously you have the romantic notion of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and it's pretty black and white. And then you went on this journey that revealed it to be 
more than just murky, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, murky doesn't do it justice. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of lost my, I completely lost my faith in truth, mm. right? I've never, I abandoned the idea of truth um, pretty early in my 30s, and I've never recovered it. It's like, there is no such thing as truth. There's, there's points of view, right? There's partial truths at best, mm. you know? And truth, people who believe in truth, you know, it feels like a very dangerous thing to me. It feels very absolute. Mm. You know, um, you know, we all—we just have a point of view. Yeah. Some of these points of view are more popular than others. That's another thing, mm. right? Mm. I kind of got more and more drawn to unpopular points of view, almost as an exploration of what you could stand up as even a partial truth. Mm. Um, but yeah, the idea that Jeff Skilling was innocent in 2003 and 2004 was an extremely unpopular idea, mm. as I discovered. <laughs> no matter how much evidence you might bring to bear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about you, Sol? First jobs. Well, I mean, if the, if the criteria is the jobs coming out of college, I have to say that you know, I was sort of exceptionally lost coming out of college mm. um, and decided that I wanted absolutely no help from my parents for, for the most part um, and landed in Portland, Maine, which was the closest thing that approximated a city to where I went to college with... I don't know how much money I had, not a lot, no place to live, and, no, and I stayed at the YMCA for the first week or so yeah. while I figured out how to get an apartment, yeah. which I had no idea really how to do. Um, and then I started, I had no experience waiting tables. And yet I was able to land a job waiting tables at some tourist place um, and made my way through a series of waiting tables um, and temp jobs. I worked in the basement of a hospital where I would have to go up and fill the supplies on each of the hospital floors. Yeah. And I just wasn't I felt like I needed something steadier like the temp jobs and the waiting tables they were just too unpredictable uh, there was no rhythm and and they were and especially the temp jobs were kind of depressing so I also was still you know I was a fine arts minor and I was painting and I was really interested in color copies I was using color copies. What are color copies? Well, you know, because Xerox... Oh, color you know, copying. They were black... You know, for yeah. a long time, there was only black and white copies. Yeah. But then these color copiers came out. I think they were Canon color copiers. And I was really into making these prints with color copiers, and then I would paint on top of them. 
and um, and I had these. I should show you some of the things I was doing at the time. I was like, ex I was exploring pop art, and I and Andy Warhol and everything, and I somehow I zeroed in on this one series of art pieces. Yeah. And they were all based on one image, which was the warning that you got at the beginning of rented videotapes, the FBI warning. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, quite a severe warning. So the, have you read it? Yeah. Yeah, I bet you have. Yeah. You got obsessed with it. Yeah. So I, I would print out these FBI screenshots of these FBI warnings, mm. and then I would paint on top of them. And then I would photocop, do color photocopies again, and then I would paint on them paint some again. more. And, and um, so where I did all of this was Kinko's. Kinko's. Kinko's, which now these days, I mean, some people who are listening to this will, of course, know Kinko's. Anyone older than what? 40? 45? I, I don't know, Saul. But Kinko's is now gone. FedEx bought them. So the FedEx office. It was FedEx Kinko's for a for while. For a long time, it? it was FedEx Kinko's. Now it's just FedEx and office. And they just got rid of it. But in the 90s, because I graduated in 92, in the 90s, Kinko's was, it was a great place. Late, 24 hour, open 24 hours, you know, you know, those copy machines and people making zines and all this kind of stuff. So I got a job at Kinko's. And it was a steady, you know, pretty much nine to five. I mean, I did different shifts, I think. But I just wanted that steady. The steadiness. Yeah. Yeah, that keeps coming back. Yeah. 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 So that was your first job. I kind of think of that as my first. What makes Kinko's your first job versus these other ones? Well, then, because it really, it really did set me on my path. Because what happened was I was trained to do anything there. Everyone was trained to do. Operate any of the machines. Pretty much. But the color copiers were sort of a specialty. So I came in as a, any, you know, but then I worked my way to the color copiers, of course, because that's what I was. That was the highest yeah. pinnacle. Yeah. And we were, the big sell on the color copiers were these personalized calendars. Ooh. So people would bring in their photos and Ooh. then every month would have this photo and we printed out these calendars. Oh, nice. Them. Yeah. They were like I don't know, 40 bucks. Were Maybe they glossy? They that. Those kind of laminated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but right next to the co color copier was the very beginnings of um, desktop publishing. It was the computing services. And there was a guy over there. There were only a couple of people that worked over there, and their business mostly was resumes. People okay. would come in and need their resume done, and they would typeset. They'd, they'd lay them out? Yeah, they would typeset the resumes using PageMaker. Which was like a kind of a desktop publishing software. Yeah, Quark, Quark Express. Quark yeah. Express. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I remember those. And I decided that I was going to work in desktop 
in uh, computer computer services. And I moved over there at Kinko's and I learned all the software, Quark Express, PageMaker, Photoshop, Illustrator, and did a lot of resumes, but did some other things as well. And um, the other woman, the guy who ran it was this resume guy. and But the other person who worked there was this woman and she was in the graphic design program at Maine College of Art. And one day she showed me what she was doing, her portfolio. And it was just like a revelation to me. I had no idea that there was this thing called graphic design. And even though in high school I did paste up, I did do like a record cover in high school, but it, there were no computers at that time. It was all paste up. Yeah. And um, she showed me her portfolio and I thought, what? wow, you mean I can do, I can be creative, I can do visually creative things and I can make a living without having to like become some sort of gallery I was I had I did not have it in me to get into galleries and like go show my work to galleries. That was not going to happen. You knew that already. Oh yeah, it was not going to happen. I mean, I was producing lots of art, mm. but I was not going to I was not going to be able to go So it's this kind of this is something I can do. Yeah. And it taps into who I am and what I love to do. Yeah. So you you mentioned typesetting yeah. Right when you were talking about what I would call desktop publishing, and you, th- I, I took from that you think of it as typesetting. So what is it about? What was it about typesetting? Well, I mean, when I finally so that ultimately led me to graduate school. Yeah. In design. Yeah. And. Um, but what is it about you and typesetting? Because you love it to this day, right? You love yeah. laying. You love laying words out on the page. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about that? I don't know. I mean, I now I'm, of course, much more often I'm a writer, but, you know, you and I were just talking recently that sometimes I write something and I get it to a certain level and then I have to start putting it into design. And the way I progress the writing is by typesetting it. And I can look at something that isn't typeset. I mean, it is typeset, but it's just a Google Doc or whatever. Yeah. And I can take it a certain distance. But then when I typeset it and I put it on the page into a design and there's page numbers and running header and, mar- you know, well you know, conceived margins. And now I start seeing the writing differently. Yeah. I'll make changes that I wouldn't have made um, um, if I hadn't typeset it. So I don't know if that really answers. I don't know why. That wasn't why it attracted me to begin with. I don't know what, what it was. Typography was a big deal in the 90s. Yeah. That was the thing. I mean, the des- what happened to graphic design in the 90s was almost 
completely about typography. Yeah. Because it wasn't just desktop publishing, it was that the creation of typefaces became possible. Digital typefaces. And um, so then my design education really was grounded in typography and typefaces and um, I never designed typefaces, but, you know, but I was, there was this fetish about typefaces and Emma Gray magazine was the, um, mm. you know, every young designer's hero. Emma Gray. Emma Gray magazine. Great name. Yeah. I'm imagining some guy in a cafe with some gulwas and a strong coffee. He was, yeah, they, they were great. There was a, a Rudy Vanderlands was this sort of like Dutch expatriate, I think, yeah. living in California. Perfect. And was his wife was, I think, I'm going to have to come back and get this right in the podcast, but Susanna Lichko or something. And she was the typeface designer. Ah. And, uh, yeah. Anyway. I've never, th I've, uh, you told me this, I've never thought of words as art, you know, visual, visual, the visual dimension of words, but it is very interesting, you know, to, to it seems like it's a bridge for you, you know, between your artistic sensibilities and your linguistic brain. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So the did this job choose you? Did you choose this job? I chose it. You chose it. I had this real idea about Kinkos. You had a vision. Yeah. Yeah. Kinkos was also a very the people that worked there were very you know, there was a lot of young gay people, like, it was just very diverse and edgy. And I liked, I liked the people that worked there, too. So you've been going into Kinko's for your art. Yeah. And you're like, I like this place. Yeah. I want to work here. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I still remember all those guys and their Doc Martin boots and, uh, I was so there were certain things from a business perspective that was that were really eye opening to me. One was the margins on photocopies. Hi, I imagine. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, you think they're charging seven cents a piece a yeah. piece for these photocopies, yeah. and they're leasing these huge machines. But what do you think the actual cost of a photo of a photocopy is? They're charging seven cents. It depends on volume. Okay. But a lot less than seven cents. I think they were getting it down to like two tenths of a cent. So it's almost pure margin. That's sort of like crack cocaine type <laughs> margins. <laughs> Good business. Yeah. And then the other thing I was fascinated by were these copy cards that you could buy. Yeah. You know, that you put 25 bucks on them and then you could come in and make copies whenever you wanted. Behind the desk, the number of lost copy cards. 
<laughs> there's just like this binder full of lost <laughs> copy cards. <laughs> and it's like, how much money does this represent? Lost copy cards. Yeah. You know, and you realize that in the world, you know, gift cards and, you know. Yeah, gift cards, unredeemed gift cards. Unredeemed gift cards. This is a slightly different category. People who just left their copy card. Yeah. Yeah. It's like free money for companies. It's like the customer handing you back <laughs> what, what they bought <laughs> without any expectation that you're, you're going to reimburse them. Yeah. 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 So that's an eye-opener. Yeah. Where does Kinko's sit in the story of Sol's career? I mean, you said already it's it's how I got started, right? It's like, well, you said actually, you said it's how I started on my path, right? You know, you sort of you were lost, and then you found this this thing you wanted to do, and it was the start of a path that is clear and has taken you to now. Well, how how does it figure in your? Well, I did. I also learned a lot about customer service. There, I mean, they uh, were very keen on. Part of a lot of the training was about customer service. Yeah, as much as learning to use the machines, it was customer service. You're extraordinarily respectful with clients. I've mm. noticed that about you. So respectful. I wonder if some of that you learned. Well, then. I mean, the cliche is that the customer is always right. They and are. They right? did. <laughs> they did. You know, teach that. Yeah. In training. Yeah. And some people could not handle it because customers could get abusive. Yeah. And some people cannot handle that. No. And they lose their ability to manage themselves. They'll come back at them. Yeah. But I always I sort of I understood I understood the philosophy. And um so there was that for sure. And you and I have been to FedEx office. I still, to this day, I go in there and, you know, you and I needed to print some oversized charts for a client. And I still feel like Kinko's is part of me. I go in, I went in there and I, I know what to do and... Yeah. I know what the guys behind the de behind the counter are doing. Yeah. And I'm one of them. Yeah, yeah, you 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 take charge, yeah. right? When you walk through the door, I noticed that you take charge It's like I know what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I was like it's all, you know, a, a puzzle for me, yeah. right? Well, how do I get this or do that or you know, and yeah. you, and you take charge and I'm like, okay. Souls Souls in the driving seat here. Yeah. Well, there was this whole thing in Kinko's about self-service and full service. Because behind the counter was full service. Okay. So people bring in jobs and they say, I need a thousand of these legal briefs and they need to be bound and all that. So there's that. But then there's self-service and there's just this mass of humanity coming in and using the photocopiers. And things get stuck. They don't know how to do something. 
Now you've got jobs behind the whole counter that are due. And then you have this world of self-service humanity <laughs> and self-service is always great in theory <laughs> i think it's from is my thought and yeah. how, so how you move between self-service and full service mm. and so when i go into fedex office now i'm i'm self-service i know what it means to be self-service yeah and I know what those guys behind the counter are doing, mm. and I know are how. You, to, are you evaluating them on how well they're toggling between self-service and full service? A little bit. Yeah, it's probably a real, probably a, a difficult skill to master, right? Yeah. 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 So, Kinkos. Yeah. Yeah. Kinkos in Portland, Maine. Karen Simone, welcome to Patterns of Work, episode one, uh, where we're talking about careers. Thank you so much for having me, Saul. So great to be here. And you, Ben. Yeah, it's very nice to see you, Karen. And um, in this uh, in this part of the show, we're talking about first jobs. And um, but before but before we get into that, we wanted to hear a little bit about what you're doing right now and. Uh, because the show's about careers. Sure. So we want to hear about your yeah. career. So um, I think like many people, when I was seven years old, I said to my mom, I would love to be a senior director of innovation at a cloud software company someday. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, in fact, what I do. I work for Salesforce. Um, I'm in a group called Digital Transformation and Innovation, and I lead a thought leadership portfolio, which is really fun because it's actually uh, focused on having elevated conversations with the C-suite about all the things that are really mattering right now in business. Um, so I did a project recently on the future of work, and right now I'm actually thinking about the future of selling and what sales will look like three to five years out from now. Yeah. Digital transformation and innovation. Yeah. So, so I'm coaching a lot of um, 20, 22 to 24-year-olds at the moment. How would you, how would you explain that to them? What is, what is digital transformation and innovation. That is a great word. And I actually recently looked up the definition of innovation on the interwebs just for fun. And it turns out there's a lot of definitions for it. Um, And of course, digital transformation has been a buzz term for some time. But I think in the context that we use it in, it, it, it is how can you work with leadership to change the shape of their company to meet the needs of their customers. So that has to happen always pretty fast, and the pace of change has been fast for a while, but obviously it feels for a lot of leaders that it's in lightning, lightning mood right now. So it's like the customers are digital and we need to be digital with them. Yep. Yeah. So it's things like looking at your tech stack, but yeah. also looking at the way your organization is shaped and designed, and are you accelerating decision making, and, and are you agile and nimble, or are you kind of strung by bureaucracy and, and hierarchy and things like yeah. that. And so we get to talk to companies about that um, instead of just our products. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun job. It sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> I always, um, I used to joke about how my mother never understood what I did. Totally. But maybe the better way to think about it these days is 
because I know we have kids that are the same age. What do your kids think you do? They think I'm in a lot of meetings. <laughs> um, they usually come into my office, as many, I'm, I have a home office, obviously, and they're e-learning as well. And so they'll come in and they say, are your calls done? And, you know, it's like, they, they think of my day in terms of how many calls do I have left. So that's about as far as they get. Mm. Actually, um, that's not true. I actually was able to, sometimes I test the work on my children who are six and nine. So when we were doing a project for the future of service, we were talking about a, a product we have called MuleSoft, but it's a data, it's a middleware product that makes data flow between different parts of a system. And so experiences can be a little bit more connected. And I tested myself that I could actually explain that to a six-year-old and she did get it. So Middleware to a six-year-old. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. impressive. It was riveting, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> Storytelling is important. Well, that's yeah. impressive. You you could get to the end and, and explain <laughs> it. Yeah. But do you still th- is content strategy a good description for your career? Yeah, I think content yeah. content and storytelling has sort of been the the red thread of the career, especially on the digital side, which is why content strategy is is definitely a, a title I had early on. Um, it's interesting when I came to Salesforce, I actually was as as you know a, a leader at an agency. And building a content practice there, and I kind of was excited to go back to being an individual contributor. So I came, kind of came to Salesforce to write and kind of sharpen those hard skills again about three years ago. Yeah. And now I have a team again. So. Wow. What's exciting about age. content strategy? What What do you like about it? I like content strategy because it's not just words, although wordcraft is a very important part of it. It is. Um, having people get the right words at the right time in the right context. So oftentimes content strategy is just taking a machete to your thoughts and making it very brief and succinct mm. and action oriented. Um, dare I use the word snackable? <laughs> um, um, so I like it because it, it forces you to think clearly and communicate clearly. I always oh. love that. Um, was it Mark Twain that said, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have time. So I wrote you a long one. Yeah, I would have written you a shorter one if I had yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I think content strategy is all about that. It's all about getting to the point quickly and, yeah. and getting your message heard. Yeah, I love the the thinking clearly. You know, it strikes me that writing clearly and thinking clearly, are, they go together, right? Yeah. You can't do one without the other. Yeah. 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 And... Um, we first met because how would you how would you describe our our first meeting? we first met because uh, I worked for you Saul yes I know <laughs> I was I was gonna let you describe it <laughs> I um well I think one thing that is very important in, in people's careers in general um, is to collect a great group of mentors and you know I definitely consider you one Saul but I think let's see that was a while back I think that's going back maybe. 12 years or something like that. Um, and I met Saul at an agency uh, in the middle of my career after I had just kind of gone on my own for six years and sort of um, scratched the entrepreneur itch. Uh, had a small um, agency, web, web strategy agency, I guess, in Chicago. And I met you because I had lunch with um, your colleague, Tim, who was a former colleague of mine. Um, and it was just that, it was just lunch. And then all of a sudden at the end of lunch, she's like, come on upstairs and see what we're doing. And I got <laughs> met you and Kurt, Kurt and we were 
whiteboarding uh, the future of the agency and stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah, that was Tim was absolutely insistent that you had to join uh, our team oh, wow. before I that? even met before I met you, <laughs> and so he didn't need to convince me after I met you. Um, but uh, yeah, we were starting the um, we were starting the digital team yeah. uh, for the IBM account. Exactly. Yeah. And then, speaking of the digital team for the IBM account, uh, when did you guys, when, when did so you guys meet? It was probably a couple of years into that job, but I still consider myself fairly young. You know, I was a new, maybe a new director at the time. And Ben, you were a very, very important person. You were a stakeholder for Very us. important person. <laughs> a VIP. He was a VIP. <laughs> but I remember you, I really remember you well because, um, you know, you were a different type of stakeholder than I think we were used to working with at IBM. And I distinctly remember you taught, uh, you were very, you had sort of a really, really smart, obviously, you came from The Economist and had this kind of charismatic way about you. Um, but also, you know, you were really into mind maps at the time. Do you remember? Mm, I still am. Yeah. Mind maps are cool. Yeah. You, but I thought it was very cool the way you sort of had a hu humility in that you would teach everybody at the table. Like, you know, what you weren't just focused on the leaders. You know, you were really, really wanted to hear everyone's voice. So I appreciated that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm blushing in an audio <laughs> way. Yeah. <laughs> I told Ben uh, maybe a story for a separate segment, but I remember the first time Ben came into the office and we met him. Yeah. And the night before, it was I had to cut my hair. It had gotten too unwieldy, <laughs> and it was the one time because I use a clipper, and it was the one time where I started cutting my hair and I was like, "Oops, <laughs> I forgot to put the guide on." So yeah. the next day I showed up with basically I was I looked like a skinhead I think. <laughs> so yeah that was I had to deal with that. But yeah. I thought you were cool too Ben because you came from the economist and you had a I thought a writer's kind of mindset and way mm. and um you know going back to the whole clear clear thinker clear uh communicator mm. which not every uh executive in corporate America shares mm. that trait. Very few, actually. <laughs> it was a real, it was a real, so, you know, leaving writing for, as a profession and then going into execue life. Yeah. Um, that was one thing I, I, I can strongly recommend it because you're, you're going to stand out as a writer <laughs> <laughs> and it's very useful. It just emails. Yeah. You write much more powerful emails. Right. Yeah. Shoot them off. Yeah, it's your brand. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, Karen, um, tell us about your first job. Okay. I'm excited about this question. <laughs> I was an English lit major at a liberal arts university, mm. <laughs> so, and was a poetry concentration, and I really was concerned about having any marketable skill whatsoever. About the poetry? You're like, how am I going to earn I'm this poetry? I'm into T.S. Eliot, but I don't know. So I um, went into, early on, I went into the internship office at Loyola University Chicago and was um, introduced to sort of the world of the, the internet startup. And I ended up at um, a company that is, uh, was a small, like 20-person company 
uh, called InView Productions, and they uh, had a very interesting business model. The CEO, who was a very cool guy and a great guy to work for, um, was a print guy. He came from publishing and print buying, and he had relationships on both coasts, but he was in Chicago. And so he wanted to create celebrity. It was a celebrity brand management company. So he wanted to create keepsake books and uh, DVD co-packs for, that was his business model, for um, celebrities. But he did have some good relationships. So I um, headed up their digital content with uh, at a very young age, and I got to work for very many cool clients, sports properties, but my favorite was Britney Spears, who I um, did all of her content from 2001 to 2003, so it was awesome. Britney Spears, your favorite was Britney Spears. Oh, by far, yeah, I loved by her. By far? Yeah, she was, she was fun. She was fun, and I, um, you know, 2001 was fairly early in the internet, so she, it was pre-social, right? I think Friendster existed, but not even MySpace. So no. doing her website was, was really quite, uh, I had to educate myself on guerrilla marketing and like getting in touch with the fans in India, you know, like we had Britney Spears.com, but there's Britney dash Spears.net, you know? So I would connect with all of her fan base and she had, I mean, to this day, I think it's probably by far the most traffic I ever got on anything I've ever written. (laughs) How come Britney Spears was such a favorite? Well, I, I should, it's funny. My husband is a musician did not know me back then, is a, is a very serious musician and guitar instructor, and we have very different tastes in music. <laughs> I'm just going to say I don't have the I – I have a curious taste in music, but I um, have always liked pop culture and terrible pop music, and I've always had a penchant for it. So I was actually uh, unapologetically a fan, and uh. um, nobody else I worked with were. Of course, they were much too cool to admit that. So Britney's people really liked me because I was, you know, did the work, but I was also like pretty enthusiastic and energetic about it. And, uh, you know, it was fun. Like she is not, you know, she's not the best singer or the best dancer or the best vocalist, but she had that, she had that performer's je ne sais quoi. And she was very, very, very sweet to work with, as was her mother. Um, You were with her mother? Quite a bit, yeah. Her mother, I had a, I had a column called Lynn's Corner, Lynn Spears being her mother. Okay. And every week we would get her notes faxed into the office. And I would take the notes that were handwritten, faxed over, and then I would write this column. And every single week the notes started with, it was a whirlwind week. Finally I had to say, Lynn, not every week can be a whirlwind week. <laughs> and what did she say back? She was like, but it was, y'all. <laughs> she said, no, it is. Right. <laughs> well, just, I mean, I'm just you know, being honest here. Yeah, her daughter had a giant coat. Well, did you see her with the snake at the VMAs? You know, I, mean, I guess it was technically wow. a moment. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, and you wrote in her mom, you were the ghostwriter for her mom. For her mom. But I also wrote the copy on the site. Which, it was her own site. Our, cu- our customer was Jive Records, which was her record label. Mm. And um, we would, <laughs> like, we would do a, a music review of her album, and that was by me. And I would do the column for Lynn Spears, and that was by me. And we would do a script for her video game, and that was, you know, me copywriting that. So it was really, I, I really, really got to know the voice pretty well. Oh, I bet. Jeez. And um, 
How, and so you told us a little bit how you got the job, but I was curious because Ben and I talk a lot about uh, college seniors coming out and yeah. just sort of looking at the world and not knowing what to do, especially, you know, those of us who did liberal arts yeah. majors. What was So you came out and you had been a English major with a focus on poetry and what was your and you went to you said you went to the the um... internship office so i did i will say i had an internship before this job and actually um i really i really recommend that like i did a lot of freelance work early on and i don't know if it's part serendipity and part you know a little bit of an extrovert personality but i would really take anything i could get and i also kind of hmm. um like I had a friend who worked for AOL. Um, she was just out of school. And this was before the web. I mean, this is when it was like AOL chat rooms. And it was like AOL keyword spin, which was spin magazine. And I remember her saying to me, like, will you do some shows, report on some shows in Chicago and just write little blurbs about the shows? But I wasn't 21, so I couldn't get into the venues. So I had a fake ID which I would, so she had the spin journalist, Jessica, which mm. was my fake ID, to get into the House of Blues to see the show, and then I would write up the column and everything. So just scrappy things like, I should probably yeah. not say that. I'm sure she'll get arrested now. But anyway. <laughs> we, can, we can edit it. <laughs> edit yeah. that piece out. Yeah, we can. Um, but I just, yeah, like trying to be scrappy and trying experimenting and trying new things. I will say it, it might be a different time now. I mean, that was yeah. the, the late 90s. It's, it's probably a bit different, maybe. Yeah. It sounds like, though, you had a, I don't think every young person is like this, but you had a, um, I don't know, you like, you were, you were able to sort of go out into the world and try things. Try things. Yes. Yeah. 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 Try things. Yeah. yeah. I, another really cool connection I made early, it was still while in college, was I worked my other, like, just walking around money job um, was... Well, there's a comedy club in Chicago called Zanies, and uh, I sold zickets in the box office at Zanies. And there I met a, um, a gentleman who was producing like little plays for just like, you know, off loop community stuff. And he had me write a pl uh, one act for one of his play series when I was really young, like 19 or something. And it was awesome. Like, mm. it was such a cool experience. So mm. I really embraced I think the city and like getting to know different types of people and having multiple networks of people early on mm -hmm. um, is that how you thought of it like trying things in the world and seeing what like trying on clothes or something and seeing what fit or how, how were you thinking at it about think, it at the time actually I think back then I think I wanted to write that was my that yeah. was how I so you had a I want to write I want to be a writer yeah and I and I didn't know what kind of writer I think I wanted to be a journalist um so I was really interested and keen mm. to, to do that. And it was very different. Those experiences taught me early on. It was very different than writing a criticism of Robert Frost, you know? So it was yeah. nice to have a variety. Or passing the wasteland. <laughs> 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 and then uh, Brittany, I mean, Brittany's I, mom. That's quite, a, that's quite a journey in a short period of time. I'm happy to do the, um, <laughs> the general prologue of the Canterbury Tales in Middle English, if you'd like. But yeah, no, it's, it was really nice to have the variety. I think. So you had a kind of a, a drive in you to, to write. Yeah. 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 Where did that come from? That's a good question. I, I always loved, you know, that's my writing and reading, always my favorite topics. Um, my father was a 
law professor and a lawyer. He wrote mm. he wrote legislation, and he obviously wrote as a lawyer, as they do. He wrote a couple books, um, but yeah, I don't know. I love to. Do, I was a big avid reader, and I love to read. And I was never into really any, much of anything except sport. You know, I mean, no sports or anything like that. I was all kind of a bookworm, um, and then a theater nerd in high school. And so I really, I don't know. I think when you, at a young age, when you create an archetype for yourself and that's going to be a creative and a writer, you know, you, it's easy to kind of understand that you say yes to certain things or you go after certain things. And that kind of put me among a few different diverse avenues. But I will say the timing of, of graduating, um, you know, and having the internet be there was an interesting time because there was a lot of opportunity to not just be a writer, but like be a digital native writer. Yeah. I remember um, our uh, colleague at VSA, Pat Hike, always said I was the world's oldest digital native. I guess yeah. that means I'm not a digital native at all. <laughs> no, you're, you're definitely pre, like me, so we're pre. <laughs> We're analog natives. Yeah, I was telling someone Digital the other comics. day that when I was in high school, the great innovation at one point was the erasable pen. Oh, yeah, the I erasable mean, pen was... Because you were writing these things longhand. I remember the erasable wow. pen. Wow. And suddenly there was an erasable, erasable pen. That's amazing. The, te the Texas Instruments <laughs> graphing calculator, though, that was like... <laughs> I, I remember one kid learned how to program like animations and movies into it. It was like, anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. Isn't that interesting? So your first job was writing and it was innovation. And here yeah. you are. <laughs> yeah, in a way. I mean, I was doing it. Yeah. I remember. So this, I, um, there was one of the books that we did was called Stages. And I remember one of the things I came up with was we're going we're gonna to promote it. Uh, and it's coming soon. It's coming in six weeks. And every week before it comes, we're going to release a letter that's the name of the book on a, a Britney fan site. So I made these relationships with these different fan sites all over the world, and they would just promote for us. They would just be like, we're so excited. We have a surprise for you tomorrow, but we can't tell you what it is. The letter is S. <laughs> you know, and it was just like... And the fans would like... There was some sort of contest. I remember when she turned 21... We had a Make Britney um, a birthday card contest, and you can call my husband right now, but we still have two or three banker's boxes full of handmade cards for Britney. Oh, how cool. Because they were, they were sent to our office, and I looked at every single one of them, and we took photos and put them on the website. So creating content that was, you know, served the needs of the user, but also was just coming up with it, like you have to feed the machine. You mm. can't, like, go a week without updating the website, you yeah. know. Um, so mm. it, it really sort of taught me perseverance too which was a good thing to learn we um and i think you know ben but just to think about where you took that when we worked together <laughs> um karen was the i mean i think of you as being the editorial lead um for the hundred icons of progress oh, that we yeah. did yeah. for ibm i mean what you a wrote cool you wrote a lot of that, that was stuff. A, what that a cool was, project that was. That was such a cool project. I am so grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, um, me too. It was really cool. It was, um, 
yeah, I mean, that was like, we were basically managed publishing program for like, cause every week, same thing, same concept right. every week we released another, yeah. another yeah. icon, um, of, of innovation that IBM brought to bear. And gosh, I learned a lot on that project. I mean, yeah. who knew that the UPC code, the ATM card, magnetic stripe, system 360, there were so many, amazing, I didn't know. so like, many amazing innovations. Yeah. Incredible. And I remember the archivist, um, Paul. Paul, yeah. Oh, yeah. He went to McKinsey. He was cool, but he, yeah. but I mean, he really was like, he knew everything yeah. about that company. Mm. It was incredible. <laughs> mm. And yeah. also, I think when you when you when you do that, well, a couple of things I learned on that project was just like just the, the the power of this corporation to like really transform, you know, the company, the the country, and the world throughout the whole century was just pretty inspiring um and just this constant change like reinvention was sort of the theme of that whole project but the other thing was like yeah deadlines like you had 16 writers and five designers and 16 writers on that project yeah i think that we had like nine and wow, ibm incredible. had five and we all worked together and we had yeah we had a little stable right yeah. um just came back to the britney thing um yep. got a question here about did did you choose that job or did it choose you? It kind of chose me. It chose you. How do you explain that? Well, um, someone that I was put in touch with was got this opportunity to um, do some spec work to actually redesign the website at the time um, when Jive Records was doing it. And I... I had I knew him through another uh, another internship, so I did mm -hmm. have this sort of a preceding relationship. And he and I remember he was like, "Do you want to help?" I'm he was a designer, and he was like, "Do you want to write?" I just need to create comps, but I would love to have some copy to go into the comps, but I can't pay you. And then he told me what the project was. I was like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> so I actually did a little bit of spec work to get that job. Gotcha. But um, he actually offered to pay me, you know, regardless, even if it didn't happen, but. He, the, as it turned out, the CEO who was actually going to hire him created a role for me because he realized that he needed someone to write. And my very first, and again, it was a little bit of an audition, I feel like. My very first thing that I had to do was go to Britney's show that was in Chicago at United Center and write a review of it as like a test. And which, I mean, that's a pretty fun test. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> It is if you like Britney. Well, I I did. I was like reading Rolling Stone like yeah. music reviews because I was like writing a music review or writing a, a show of a live tour review is like a special special kind of a genre, right? Yeah. And, um, but I really dug deep and gave it my all. I was like, <laughs> I remember almost pulling an all nighter on that, and I felt like it was pretty good. And um, he loved it, and uh, he that did. Was it. It. I do remember, yeah, and I do remember he said I had, he was like, listen, I was actually thinking of another writer for this role who's way more experienced, but you are so, going to be so much cheaper. I'm going to go with you. <laughs> I love, so, I love that. So youth does have its advantages, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about, were there disappoint, you know, we have a question about disappointments. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, I guess maybe our hypothesis is that every first job has its highs and lows. Yes. Was there, did you, did there come a time where you thought this, there, yeah. Yeah, there were some lows. Well, I think, I think I was, um, 
I've always been, I mean, you, you, I worked for you, you know, I mean, I've always been pretty, um, like kind of a, are we allowed to swear on this? Sure. You know, I was kind of a get shit doneer, you know, like I, I, if there was something that had to be done, I kind of was like filling the holes and making sure I got it done. And I do feel like I sort of branded myself in that job as someone who would just write all the proposals. We, that was a role that was supposed to, the new business writing was, was supposed to be shared across three people, two of whom were older than me and more experienced than me. And it did seem like I did a little bit more of the grunt work, um, mm. which is okay for a first job. That's what you, you know, you have to learn that. Um, but I remember at one point, like two years in, maybe thinking like, hmm, maybe I should not always like jump and just like volunteer. Mm. Mm. So, um, although that, that, that trait of making sure you, whatever it takes, get it done is, is something that, that has served me well in other roles. I think the biggest disappointment, which many people in our career, in our careers have experienced was how that job ended, which was, um, he was, uh, our, our, our CEO was actually unable to sustain the business. And, um, I was very new to this idea of like mezzanine financing and getting all these weird memos and not understanding. And one day he was not able to make payroll. And that's when my other colleagues were like, well, jigs up, let's go find other work. And I was like, I really, re I mean, I was like, what do you mean? Like, I just, it didn't, Mm. I, the business actually ended up ending. He he was able to find jobs for other people because he moved into an agency, a different agency, and um, I chose not to go. But it was really devastating for me because mm. I just, you know, it was 20 people working together, all these creative people on the sexy work. And, yeah. you know, and I was young and this is so fun. And I really enjoyed my colleagues like after work and we would all always go out and stuff. And, and it just didn't last, you know, mm. it, and I think you think when you're that age that like, yeah, this will last forever. We're invincible. Right. Like, so it was a good, you know, I think it was a that's good. A, yeah. That's quite a, a life lesson to learn you early, gotta, right? Yeah. You got to learn. We're not that. making payroll. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I remember one colleague was like, well, this isn't the Red Cross, so you don't come in. Half the time. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> that's, that's another great lesson. <laughs> I, was like, I will say it was June in Chicago. And all of my other colleagues also were, were I think the term was um, effective termination or something like that. Yeah. So, so we kind of were able to like, you know, go to the unemployment office and then go get margaritas afterwards. And it like sort of was a little bit of a... Oh, I see. Yeah. Better than January. You had, yeah, <laughs> it was warm. And no, you guys, yeah, you're very oriented to the winter <laughs> and summer. Yeah, exactly. Right? It was kind of, yeah. So you guys, but you guys weren't laid off. He just one day didn't make payroll. The, the, you, you, yeah. yeah you, so you technically can get unemployment for that. Hmm. It's, it's as though you were, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Karen. This was awesome. Thank yeah, you both. Was, it was really fun. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. And also, so I'll appreciate all the opportunity uh, you've given me in my career. So oh, I owe you a debt of gratitude. I feel very um, honored that you consider me a mentor. So <laughs> I, I always just thought you were, you didn't need a mentor, oh, honestly. Thanks, so, all. Well, you're on my board of directors. Okay. <laughs> Have your personal board of directors, right? <laughs> thanks to both. All right. Thank you, Karen. Karen. All right. Bye.